This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're starting our new series, and it's going to be a doozy. I often get requests to cover serial killers, and they will be represented in this series, although that is not the main topic. This month's series is Murder in the Family, where I'll detail cases of family members who commit murder together. First up, I will tell you a story of a particularly brutal band of brothers who terrorized Richmond, Virginia during an eight-month killing spree in 1979. This is one of those cases that is shocking in its brutality and baffling in its motivation. This is the case of the Briley brothers. The three Briley brothers, Linwood, James Jr., who was called JB, and Anthony, grew up in a stable middle-class home in the Highland Park neighborhood of Richmond, Virginia. Their father, James, was employed by a concrete factory, and their mother, Bertha, was employed at Virginia Union University in the food service department. Bertha was described as one of the sweetest ladies you'd ever want to meet. James Sr. was described as a hard worker and a good father. He once said that his son Linwood was nearly a genius. Some would say that James Sr. was the only person his boys feared in life, so perhaps he was somewhat strict, although no one has come forward to say he was abusive in any way towards his sons. Neighbors of the Brileys said that as young boys, the boys were polite and helpful, sometimes assisting neighbors in yard work or other chores. But as the three Briley brothers reached their teen years, something seemed to change. Those who attended school with them described them as bullies. They liked to keep unusual pets, including tarantulas and boa constrictors, but that is not that uncommon for pre-teens and teen boys. No, something more must have been happening with the boys in the Briley home. Their mother, Bertha, eventually left her husband and boys due to her son's out-of-control behavior and her husband's unwillingness or inability to discipline them. It would later be reported that James Sr., once feared by his boys, now kept his bedroom door bolted shut from the inside as a precaution against them as he slept. What exactly he was afraid they'd do is unknown. What is known is that by the time he was 16 years old, Linwood Briley, the oldest boy, was not only a full-blown sociopath, but also a murderer. He would most likely be the catalyst for his two younger brothers to follow in his footsteps. On January 28, 1971, the Briley's 57-year-old neighbor, Orlean Christian, was hanging laundry in her backyard when she collapsed on the ground. Orlean was a recent widow, so her family at first thought the stress of her husband's death had caused her to have a massive heart attack and die. However, when she was being readied for burial at the funeral home, a small bloody hole was discovered underneath one arm and an autopsy was conducted. The hole was determined to be a bullet wound. A homicide detective then very cleverly conducted an investigation, placing a plywood board in the exact spot Orlean was standing and drilling a hole in the place where the bullet had entered her body. Following the angle of the trajectory, he determined that the bullet had to have been fired from the Briley home. He soon found the murder weapon there, a 22 caliber rifle, and questioned the teenage Linwood. Linwood easily admitted to the shooting of Mrs. Christian. He'd been alone in his bedroom with the loaded rifle 
when he saw his neighbor going about her daily chores next door. He pointed the gun at her from his windowsill and fired off one shot, killing her. When asked why, Linwood simply said that he knew Mrs. Christian had heart problems and that she would have died soon anyway. Okay, one question leaps out. What the heck was this antisocial bullying boy, whose behavior was scary enough to cause his own father to lock his door against him, doing with a loaded weapon? How did he get it, and did his parents know he had it? That was a question that I was unable to find an answer for, unfortunately. But I digress. For this calculated act of homicide, Linwood received, wait for it, one year in a juvenile facility, or what used to be called a reform school. However, as we will soon see, he was in no way reformed. Meanwhile, his younger brothers began, or continued, their own life of crime. In 1973, James Jr., or J.B., held up a convenience store, and when pursued by police after the robbery, he fired off a round at an officer. He was caught and also received a lenient sentence, spending a short time in juvenile hall for his crimes. The Briley brothers, Linwood, J.B., and younger brother Anthony, would begin their crime spree together with a younger friend, Duncan Meekins, in 1979, and the people of Richmond, Virginia, who lived through it, would never sleep as soundly again. On March 12, 1979, Linwood Briley approached the home of William and Virginia Butcher on Lafayette Avenue in Henrico, just north of the city of Richmond. The elderly Mr. Butcher answered the door to see a nicely dressed young African-American man with a large afro on his doorstep. Linwood told the man that he was having car trouble and asked to use his phone to call AAA. Mr. Butcher told him he'd make the call for him and asked the young man to hand him his membership card. As he opened the screen door to hand him the card, Linwood pushed his way inside and grabbed the homeowner. Pushing him into the house, he held a gun to his head and a knife to his throat. His wife Virginia, seeing this, began to cry out, and Linwood threatened to cut off her husband's ear if she made any noise. Linwood's younger brother Anthony now joined him in the house and began, on Linwood's orders, to tie up the couple. William Butcher asked the young man not to tie him up too tightly because it hurt. To his surprise, the young man obeyed. After the couple were tied up in separate rooms, Linwood and Anthony ransacked the house, taking jewelry, a gun, a CB radio, television sets, and a police scanner, among other valuables. Before leaving, they doused each room of the house and Mr. Butcher himself with lighter fluid, lighting a match in the living room before exiting. The Butchers would have certainly perished in the fire if Mr. Butcher had not asked for his bindings to not be pulled so tight. He was able to free himself soon after the men left and then untie his wife. They escaped the house before it burnt to the ground. The Butchers would be the only surviving victims of the Briley brothers' crime spree. Asked how he felt about this years later, when he was 88 years old, Mr. Butcher said, I felt doggone lucky. Linwood also stole the Butcher's car, which was later found abandoned. Just over a week later, on March 21st, a vending machine company employee, Michael McDuffie, was at home in suburban Richmond when the Briley gang, now consisting of Linwood, age 24, J.B., age 22, Anthony, age 20, and a young friend, Duncan Eric Meekins, age 16, broke into his home. They shot and killed him before ransacking his house for valuables. They dumped his body in the trunk of his car and drove off with it, 
abandoning the car later. There are two other murders during that month that were later suspected of being tied to the Briley gang. On March 31st, according to a report, Linwood Briley shot and killed a 28-year-old man named Edric Clark during a drug-related argument. Duncan Meekins was listed as an accomplice. Also, 32-year-old Thomas Saunders was also killed, possibly during a scuffle involving James and Linwood. It was reported that Meekins, this time, allegedly pulled the trigger. On April 9th, 76-year-old Mary Gallen was unlucky enough to be seen by the Brileys, leaving her daughter's house after babysitting. They were cruising around Richmond when they spotted her and followed her home. As she stepped out of her car, the four men rushed her and shoved her into a stairwell. Each of them raped her, and then she was shot in the head, robbed, and left to die. She was able to crawl up two flights of stairs, where she was found by her 14-year-old granddaughter on the doorstep. Mary Gowan went into a coma and clung to life for almost three months before dying on July 2nd. She never regained consciousness. With the rape and murder of Mary Gowan, I believe the brothers and Duncan Meekins moved from being violent robbers and murderers to true sociopathic serial killers. First, collectively, they were already responsible for three to five murders and two attempted murders, but most importantly, their motivation for killing Gowan, a 76-year-old woman, was clearly for the thrill of it. While Mary did live in an upscale neighborhood, she also lived in an apartment building and didn't look like a wealthy woman. They did not wait for her to enter her home in order to ransack and rob it, as they had their previous victims, but instead gang-raped her and left her for dead, taking the few dollars she had in her purse before fleeing. This was a completely senseless and violent act, perpetrated by a group of vicious and brutal killers for no apparent reason. We also see that they are picking their victims at random. This was one reason why the citizens of Virginia began to panic, wondering if they or their loved ones could be next. On July 4th, the same day Mary Gowan was being buried, the gang spotted 17-year-old Christopher Phillips looking into the windows of Linwood's car. Furious that the boy might even dare to think of stealing from him, Linwood confronted him. Not giving him a chance to explain, the gang rushed him and forced him into a neighboring empty backyard. Phillips cried out for help, which only served to enrage Linwood further. This time, not drawing a gun, perhaps not wanting anyone nearby to hear a gunshot out in the open, Linwood picked up a nearby cinder block and dropped it on the boy's head, crushing in his skull and killing him. As the fall months began in Richmond, the gang sped up their crime spree. On September 14th, the men were cruising around town looking for someone to rob. They'd been driving around all night without finding a convenient victim when they decided to stake out a South Richmond nightclub and restaurant, the Log Cabin. They parked outside and waited for someone to emerge alone. An intoxicated victim would make an easy robbery victim, they thought, and would be ideal. Later, investigators would concur with my earlier assessment that robbery was no longer the main motivation for these men. They had been looking for people at random to murder for a thrill or to feel powerful. That night, they gathered a sawed-off shotgun and a high-caliber rifle and cruised around to hunt victims in Linwood's purple Chevy Nova. Playing in the band at the log cabin that night was John Gallagher, known as Johnny G. Not only was Gallagher a bass guitarist who spent his weekends playing with local bands, but he was also a well-known and popular country music DJ for radio station WXGI. 
Gallagher made the unfortunate decision to step outside for a bit of fresh air during one of the band's breaks. He didn't even smoke, but just decided to clear his lungs of the smoky bar air and stretch his legs. The men who were lying in wait saw him emerge alone. Linwood rushed up to him, raising the rifle to Gallagher's head. Forcing him to the ground, he took his car keys and wallet. Linwood tossed the keys to Douglas Meekins, who quickly found Gallagher's Lincoln Continental parked close by. Meekins and Linwood then shoved Gallagher into the trunk of his own car and drove off. J.B. and Anthony followed behind in Linwood's vehicle. They drove a few miles up the highway before pulling onto the property of an abandoned paper mill. They told Gallagher to climb out of the trunk, and he stumbled upon emerging. As he began to rise to his feet, Linwood shot him point-blank in the head. They then dragged his body to the river and rolled him into the dark water. Only 20 minutes had passed since they first accosted Gallagher. Again, there was absolutely no reason for this killing. They already had Gallagher's wallet and car. They drove around the rest of the night in his car until it ran out of gas. Then they stripped it of any valuables and dumped it. As with most of their robberies, they only got away with a few dollars and a few personal possessions. All told, they robbed $6 in cash from John Gallagher, a CB radio, an antenna, and a couple of items of jewelry, one that would tie Linwood to this murder in the future. Back at the bar, Gallagher's bandmates were perplexed as to why he hadn't returned. His car was also gone, and it was totally unlike their friend to disappear, especially in the middle of a gig. The next day, Saturday the 14th, the car was found. The police suspected Gallagher had met with foul play, and first were sure they'd find the man in the trunk of the car. However, when they pried it open, it was empty. Crime scene technicians processed the car and found a single fingerprint behind one of the door panels. The interior panel, it was believed, had been pried open to look for stereo speakers. A search for Gallagher was conducted for three days, but he was not found. Several days later, his body would be discovered tangled in some tree branches in the river by some men who were fishing. Gallagher's murder was big news in Richmond owing to the fact of his popularity as a radio DJ. Now the people of Richmond began to grow more fearful as the string of murders came to light. Investigators were stumped due to the fact that there seemed to be no pattern. The crimes ranged from rapes to robberies to murders. The victims also fit no specific type. Young, old, male, female, white, black, anyone, it seemed, could be next. However, investigators had not linked the Gallagher murder to any of the others, Mary Gowan, Michael McDuffie, or Christopher Phillips. All they knew was that crime in the area seemed to be increasing, and the citizens wanted answers. Two weeks after Gallagher's murder, the gang struck again. This time, they followed a 62-year-old nurse named Mary Wolfong to her Richmond apartment. Not even waiting for her to enter her home, Linwood beat her to death with a bat before the men ransacked it for valuables. They left her to die on her doorstep. They committed an even more brutal double murder just days later. On October 5th, just two blocks from the Briley's own home, 79-year-old Blanche Page and her boarder, 59-year-old Charles Garner, were attacked in their home at 3109 Fifth Avenue. When they were not heard from for several days, their neighbors asked Richmond police to call on them for a welfare check. When police entered the home, it was drenched in blood. A Hanover County Sheriff, who oversaw the Briley investigation, described the scene this way. The thing that struck me as soon as I walked in the door was up the stairwell, the whole wall and steps 
were just covered in blood, all the way up. Upstairs, in Blanche Page's room, the walls were also covered in blood, as was the ceiling. Her body was found in her bed, bludgeoned to death with a baseball bat. She had been hit viciously multiple times. Police said that Blanche's killing wasn't just murder, it was overkill. Charles Garner's body was found in the kitchen. He had also been beaten with a baseball bat, but he was also attacked with a variety of other weapons. Five knives, a carving fork, and scissors had been plunged into his body, suggesting multiple attackers. The fork and scissors were left sticking into Garner's back. Pages from a phone book had been dropped onto his body and lit on fire. Two weeks later, on October 19, 1979, J.B. appeared before a judge as a condition of his probation on a previous charge of robbing a convenience store. He assured the judge he had gone straight and would not re-offend. That evening, the Bridley brothers committed their most heinous crime to date. The Richmond and Henrico police were still trying to come up with the most likely suspect or suspects for the rash of violent crimes that had been taking place the last seven months. Linwood Briley came under suspicion due to his record first, and then with more scrutiny when his fingerprint matched the one found on the panel of Johnny Gallagher's car. They then placed him under surveillance. On October 19th, a surveillance van was parked on the Briley's block. A female officer was alone in the van when she heard James and Linwood arguing outside their house about whether there were police in the van watching them. It was Linwood's position that there were police in the van, but J.B. didn't think so. Together, they approached the van and tried to see through the tinted windows. The officer didn't make a sound. When they couldn't see inside, they began rocking the van. When still nothing happened, J.B. pulled out a gun and fired it into the air and then into the ground in their front yard. Still nothing happened. James then told Linwood that if there had been cops in the van, they would have run out guns drawn after he fired his weapon. Linwood was now convinced that it was not a surveillance van. They got into their car and drove away. Luckily, the officer knew not to challenge the Brileys when she was outnumbered. The gang went on the prowl for another victim to rob that night. This time, they picked a longtime neighbor and acquaintance. They parked their car on the block where 26-year-old Harvey Wilkerson lived with his common-law wife, 23-year-old Judy Barton, and her 5-year-old son, Harvey. Wilkerson happened to see the Bradley brothers emerge from their car from his front door. He quickly closed and bolted the door shut. The Bradley's reputation, it seems, preceded them, and Wilkerson feared what they might be up to. This angered Linwood, who demanded he open the door. Perhaps frightened also what they might do if he didn't comply, Wilkerson let them in. Linwood, J.B., Anthony, and Duncan Meekins all entered the house. They quickly overpowered Wilkerson and proceeded to tie him and his family up and silence them with duct tape over their mouths. Once they were all helpless, the men dragged Judy, who was five months pregnant, into the kitchen where Linwood and Meekins took turns raping her. They then dragged her back into the living room to join Wilkerson and her terrified son. They then ransacked the house, taking anything they deemed to be of value, before returning to their victims. Linwood exited the house, leaving the rest of the gang inside. J.B. shot Judy Barton in the head four times, 
and then handed the gun to Meekins, telling him, You've got to get one. Meekins first placed a pillow against Wilkerson's head before shooting him through it. J.B. then shot and killed five-year-old Harvey Barton. Officers still had Linwood under surveillance, but had lost him earlier in the day. Now hearing the shots in the neighborhood, they tried to determine where they had come from, but failed. The Briley gang, once again, slipped away. Back in their car, Linwood was tracking the Richmond police's movements on the police scanner he'd stolen from the butchers. He stopped his car and tossed the shotgun over a fence. They also looked for somewhere to hide the 22 caliber rifle they'd stolen from Wilkerson's home. Besides the rifle, the robbery of the Wilkerson's home only yielded less than $100. Perhaps thinking he'd been shortchanged, James Briley returned to the murder scene that weekend and stepped over the bodies to cart off their television set. The bodies of Harvey Wilkerson, Judy Diane Barton, and Harvey Wayne Barton were left in the living room of their home, covered with sheets. They were not found until three days later. Before investigators could enter to process the crime scene, animal control had to be called. Wilkerson kept pet snakes in his home, and the Briley gang had let them out of their tanks. When the police entered the home, a surreal and creepy scene greeted them. Several large snakes were slithering through the house on the blood-drenched floors. On the day after the bodies were discovered, an arrest warrant was issued for Linwood Earl Briley, and a stakeout began at 6 p.m. About 7.15, Linwood's Chevy Nova was seen traveling east on Brooklyn Park Boulevard. Over 15 police vehicles converged on the car that was occupied by Linwood, Meekins, and Linwood's father, James Briley Sr. Linwood jumped out of the vehicle while it was still moving, leaving his accomplice and his father in the unmanned car. It crashed into a pole, slightly injuring the two men. Linwood was quickly captured. Linwood and Meekins were taken into custody. Warrants were then issued for the two remaining Briley brothers, Anthony and J.B. Both were arrested the next day when they came in voluntarily and turned themselves into Richmond Police Headquarters. Douglas Meekins was taken to the juvenile detention center and questioned. It didn't take long for the 16-year-old to talk. What he told the police astounded them. They wanted the Briley's for the Wilkerson-Barton murders, but were surprised to hear that the rash of violent rapes and murders they had been investigating for a good part of a year were also committed by the brothers. In total, the Briley's were suspected of 11 murders and perhaps as many as 20 more robberies and assaults. Douglas Meekins was offered a plea deal in exchange for his testimony against the Briley brothers. While Meekins admitted to robbery, rape, and the murder of Harvey Wilkerson, he was spared the death penalty in exchange for turning state's evidence against his accomplices. He was promised he would not receive a harsher sentence than any of his adult counterparts. Linwood denied responsibility for any of the crimes. He said Meekins was a liar who was just saying what the prosecutors wanted to hear because he'd been threatened with the death penalty. In effect, he'd been bribed by the state, Linwood said. He continued to refute everything Meekins said to investigators. Detective Leroy Morgan was called in to interrogate him. As he sat across from Linwood in the interview room, he noticed a turquoise ring on his hand. Morgan had been good friends with murder victim John Gallagher, the radio DJ. He recognized the ring that Linwood wore as having belonged to Gallagher. In fact, the detective had been with his friend when he purchased it. 
He knew now that they had proof positive that Linwood had been involved in the murder of Gallagher, and the detective took satisfaction in being able to nail his friend's murderer to the wall. After a prolonged trial, both Linwood and J.B. received numerous life sentences for the string of murders. In addition, Linwood received the death penalty for the murder of John Gallagher, and J.B. received two death sentences for the murders of Judy Barton and her son Harvey. The youngest brother, Anthony, received a single life sentence with the eligibility for parole as his involvement in the murders was limited. Douglas Meekins was sentenced to life plus 80 years in prison and was sent under an assumed name to another prison away from the Briley's. Before sending the two elder Briley brothers to death row at Mecklenburg Correctional Center in 1980, the judge said that their crimes were the vilest rampage of rape, murder, and robbery that the court had seen in 30 years. But the tale of the Briley brothers was not yet over. Both Linwood and J.B. continued their violent ways, intimidating fellow inmates, and alternately using their intelligence and charm to manipulate others. They oversaw the trade of drugs and weapons while in prison. Why the Bridley brothers were allowed to stay together in the same prison is beyond me, but prison officials would soon realize their mistake. On May 31, 1984, six prisoners led by James and Linwood Briley put a plan into action to escape death row. The brothers had been incarcerated awaiting their execution date for four and a half years. With nothing to lose, they presented their plan to the other death row inmates, and four decided to join them in the escape attempt. Lem Tuggle was a two-time murderer who had received the death penalty for the rape and murder of a 52-year-old woman he'd met at a dance. Earl Clanton Jr. had strangled a school librarian. Willie Leroy Jones was convicted of robbery and the murder of an elderly couple. Derek Peterson was given the death sentence for robbing and killing a 45-year-old grocery store manager. Mecklenburg's death row was considered an escape-proof facility but the prisoners spent months observing and recording the guards' assignments, shift changes, and habits before putting their plan into action. They had fashioned knives out of materials they had scrounged from around the prison and hid them in the cracks of the walls for later use. Each of them shaved their beards and trimmed their hair in the days before the escape attempt. At 8.30 p.m., as usual, prisoners were brought back into the row from the recreation area. Inmate Earl Clanton Jr. went unnoticed, when he lingered behind the group and snuck into the control room's bathroom. All the other inmates filed into their cells. The hidden inmate was almost discovered when a prison nurse tried to get into the restroom to fetch water to distribute medication as was her nightly routine. When she couldn't get in through the locked door, she complained to the guards. James Briley, upon hearing this, quickly jumped in to offer an excuse. He told the guard that he'd heard earlier that day that the plumbing in that restroom wasn't working. Without checking, the guard accepted this explanation and sent the nurse to another sink to get water. Around 9 p.m., James requested reading materials. Books were kept in a day room next to the control room. The guard stepped out of the control room to get him a book. At that moment, James shouted to Clanton, who rushed from his hiding place in the bathroom and overtook the guard. Clanton took over the control panel and opened the doors to every death row cell. The inmates then took control, using their homemade weapons and the element of surprise 
to disarm the guards, tape their mouths, and remove their uniforms. They then locked the guards in a cell. The six inmates dressed themselves in the guards' uniforms. Fourteen guards were taken hostage. While they were waiting to put the next part of the plan into action, Linwood told the other inmates he was going to find the nurse and rape her. Inmate Wilbert Lee Evans stopped him from doing so. James Briley wanted to douse the guards with lighter fluid and burn them, but another inmate, Willie Lloyd Turner, prevented him from doing so. After 90 minutes, the prisoners were able to grab another hostage, a lieutenant, and force him to call for a van. He was to tell the guards outside that the prisoners had made a bomb and the van was needed to cart the bomb away. The prison sent a van, but made sure it was an old one in case it was blown up. The six death row inmates now had control of the cell block and were wearing helmets, gas masks, and body shields. The rest of the prison guards and inmates were still unaware of the situation. To escape the prison grounds, they would need to go through the main building, Building 1, where the main control room was located. Derek Peterson, wearing a guard's uniform, was able to gain access to Building 1, where only one female guard was positioned. He said he was assigned to relieve her at her post. She opened the door to him, realizing too late that he was not a guard, but an inmate. They had gotten past the first hurdle, but a second gate had to be opened to exit the prison grounds. Between these two gates, the person had to show identity and be buzzed through by another guard. The prisoners created a diversion by placing a television set upon a wheeled cart or gurney and covering it with a sheet. Bursting out of Building 1 towards the outer gate, they began shouting that this object was an unstable bomb that was in danger of exploding. They continually blasted fire extinguishers toward the object, as if trying to cool some type of dangerous chemical reaction. The men were disguised in the uniforms and had helmets covering their heads. The van that the lieutenant had ordered was waiting beside the gate. They lifted the object into the van while shouting at the guard to open the second gate. Confused in all the melee, she did not follow proper procedure and opened the gate. The six men with the fake bomb drove off into the night. I cannot believe that this story, including this escape, has not been made into a movie. This scene especially is completely ludicrous. The news of the escape didn't reach the public for another 30 minutes. The escaped convicts headed towards North Carolina, and besides the weapons and uniforms, they had taken almost $800 in cash off of the guards. All this was completed in just three hours, and with no shots fired or anyone seriously injured. It was the largest death row escape in United States history. Citizens of Richmond, Virginia, remembered their fear during the summer and fall of 1979 and were terrified that two of the Briley brothers, with four other death row murderers, were on the loose. The city was in a panic, especially after finding out that area police officers weren't told of the escape for several hours, nor did they receive descriptions of the escaped convicts until 16 hours later. Police offered protection to anyone who was formerly involved in the arrest or prosecution of the Briley gang including witnesses, relatives, and friends of their former victims. Unknown to anyone at the time, the escapees at first planned to head north and into Canada. However, they ended up splitting up instead. The escape took place on Thursday, and by Friday morning, Derek Peterson and Earl Clanton were caught just over the state line in North Carolina. They were sharing a bottle of wine in a laundromat. 
people became suspicious after recognizing their shoes as prison-issued. The prison van was soon recovered nearby, and a manhunt began in the town of Warrington, North Carolina. Citizens were told to shelter in place while a house-by-house search was conducted for the remaining convicts at large. A blue pickup truck was reported stolen on the night of May 31st, just outside of Warrington. The description of this vehicle was broadcast, and it was spotted 50 miles north of Richmond, Virginia. Lem Tuggle was identified as one of its occupants. On June 8th, much further north in Woodford, Vermont, Lem Tuggle pulled a knife on a store clerk in a robbery. Police were called and a chase ensued. Woodford police caught the wanted fugitive and took him into custody. Just hours later, Willie Jones was also captured in Vermont, only a few miles south of the Canadian border. Tuggle, upon questioning, told the cops that the Briley brothers were dropped off in Philadelphia. Investigators discovered that the Brileys had an uncle who resided in the Philly area. Cops were sent to stake out any known friends' or relatives' homes, as well as their workplaces. Some of these people's phone lines were also being traced in case the killers should try and contact them by phone. One person under surveillance in New York received a phone call that was traced to an automobile repair shop in North Philadelphia. The garage was then watched by the FBI. On June 19th, Linwood and James were spotted arriving at the garage which they were living in. They were going by the nickname Slim and Lucky. Armed agents moved in after dark and captured the brothers as they were grilling chicken in the dark alley behind the garage. The Briley brothers had been captured 19 days after their escape. As a response to the escape, Mecklenburg Prison put new security measures into place. Recreation yard privileges for death row inmates were discontinued. Additional walls, gates, and security doors were installed. Many prison employees were either transferred or replaced. Linwood Briley was the first of the brothers to meet his fate in Virginia's electric chair. Because of the violent and vicious nature of their crimes, as well as the successful escape from prison, not many supported the brothers' efforts to escape the death penalty. Even the NAACP, a strong opponent of the death penalty that argued that the death sentence was unfairly applied in larger numbers to African Americans, declined to step in to support them. Jack Gravely, then state director of the NAACP in Virginia, said, People in Richmond feel that crimes committed by this individual, speaking of Linwood, to be so heinous, so vicious and violent, I just think it has quelled the voices that would speak out. We feel the community, especially the black community, could not condone it. On October 12, 1984, Linwood Briley, age 30, spent his last few hours visiting with his mother and his 10-year-old son. He declined to request a final meal, but was given a steak and a baked potato. He was also allowed to receive phone calls from his brothers, Anthony and James. He was walked to the death house just before 11 p.m. by a minister and strapped into the electric chair. When asked for his last words, he simply stated, I am innocent. He was pronounced dead at 11.05 p.m. The next to walk the Green Mile would be James. But before that happened... He had a wedding to attend, his own. After Linwood Briley was executed, Evangeline Redding, age 44, began corresponding with James. 
the former talk show host and divorced mother of four from North Carolina, said they quickly fell in love. Even though she knew there was only a few months left before James's execution date, she decided during the four non-contact visits they had together that she wanted to become his wife. On March 29, 1985, James and Evangeline were married in the prison, just steps away from the electric chair. They remained separated by bars, even during the ceremony. Evangeline wore a white linen suit, and James wore his usual prison denims. The bride had to be strip-searched before she could enter the cell block for the ceremony, as did James Briley Sr., the groom's father, who was also in attendance. As part of her vows during the 10-minute ceremony, Evangeline recited, Tomorrow I will walk alone, but I will walk proudly as a woman. I will wear your love and your name. The warden allowed the newlyweds to embrace once through the bars and share a few kisses. It was the first time they had ever touched and would be almost the last time as well. Three weeks later, on April 18th, James Briley was scheduled to die. But before he did, there would be one more act of violence carried out in his name. At 7.45 a.m. on the morning of the execution, four prisoners in the maximum security area wearing pillowcases over their heads and armed with clubs and screwdrivers tried to drag a guard into a cell. It took almost 30 minutes to get the cell block under control and stop the violence. 17 prisoners were involved and nine guards and one inmate were injured. The incident was an attempt to delay Briley's execution. But plans for the execution went off without a hitch after the inmate's plans to take a hostage was thwarted. Briley's visitors were still allowed to see him that afternoon, including his wife Evangeline. She would later praise the inmates who took place in the riot. Because, she said, you care about James. We're sorry you were hurt in the process, she apologized, though whether she met the prisoners, the guards, or both is not clear. But this is what happens when a state acts in a violent manner, she continued. Speaking of the execution, she said, they are planning on committing a violent crime against James Briley tonight. Violence breeds violence, she concluded. Unlike his brother, James did request and was granted a final meal. He asked for fried shrimp with cocktail sauce and lemon-lime soda. He declined to make a final statement and instead just smiled. He was strapped into the same electric chair where his brother had met his fate just five months earlier. Two 55-second bursts of 2,300 volts of electricity were administered and James Briley was pronounced dead at 11.07 p.m. At 11.20, an announcement was made to a crowd of about 600 that had gathered outside of the prison that Briley's execution had been carried out. A cheer went up from the crowd. A smaller group of anti-death penalty demonstrators stood nearby holding candles and signs and singing hymns. In 1996, the sole surviving member of the four death row inmates who had escaped with the Briley brothers was put to death. Lem Tuggle escaped the electric chair and was instead given a lethal injection. It was December 12th, and his last words were, Merry Christmas. Anthony Ray Briley remains incarcerated in the Virginia Corrections System. He has come up for parole several times, but all of his applications have been denied. Evangeline Redding Briley is now 77 years old and continues to work as a civil rights activist. She still goes by the name Briley. She has since explained that her marriage to James Briley was calculated to draw attention to the plight of black men in the penal system and on death row in America. 
Linwood left behind a young son named Norman Ampey. He was 10 years old at the time of his father's execution. He was not told of his father's scheduled execution until the day it was carried out. Norman, scarred by the loss of his father and haunted by his crimes, began to spin out of control as a teen. He blamed the law for taking his father away from him and began to openly defy authority. All I know was that my dad was dead and the police killed him. That's what I grew up thinking until I got old enough to understand what really happened, he would later say. He began getting in trouble at age 13 and was labeled as emotionally disturbed by school administrators. He began taking and selling drugs and dropped out of school altogether in the ninth grade. He was caught with cocaine and a gun at age 15 and was committed to the youth authority. When he was released, he moved in with his girlfriend and became a father at age 16. At 18, he was arrested for possession of heroin with intent to distribute and was sent to prison for a little over two years. In 1996, he was charged with capital murder for robbing and shooting a man named George Ross. The charges later were dropped, saving him from receiving the same fate as his father. Eight weeks after being released from prison on the murder charge, Norman was ambushed by several men at a gas station and in front of his daughter, wife, and stepson, was shot 24 times in every part of his body except for his head. He was critically injured and put into a chemically induced coma for six months. It would take him a full two years to recover. He believed that this attempt on his life was in retaliation for the murder of George Ross, which he would always deny responsibility for. Norman Ampey died in 2015 at the age of 41. Some believe he never fully recovered from being shot, and this may have contributed to his early death. However, he also had a long criminal history of drug possession, most specifically heroin, so it is also likely that his ongoing drug use led to his early demise. Violence breeds violence, and death indeed. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Before we go, I get to announce our two winners of our Studio Sweden earbuds. Studio Sweden makes premium headphones with studio-quality sound and a classic Scandinavian design, and I've become a big fan of their products and have two of their sweet Bluetooth earbuds to give away. These earbuds are light as a feather, boast great clear sound, and are gorgeous. The earbuds they provided for our contest are white with rose gold accents and a matching leather case. Thank you to everyone who sent in an email or Facebook message to be entered into the drawing. The two listeners who have each won a pair of Studio Sweden Vasabla earbuds are Jessica Jellison and Amber Crisco. Congratulations! Check your email box for a message from me so that you can provide me with your mailing address. If you didn't win, but would still like to get a pair of Studio Sweden Bluetooth earbuds or headphones, I've got a deal for you. Go to studiosweden.com and put in the offer code CRIME for 15% off of any purchase. And just in time for the holidays, you'll also receive a complimentary gift box with each purchase as well. I know I'll be purchasing a few of these as gifts this season. Shh, don't tell anyone, it's a surprise. That's studiosweden.com and use the offer code CRIME. Until next time, be good to one another. Thank you. 
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.